You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. So I want to give a little bit of a heads up, a warning, I suppose, about the passage we're about to read. And what I'm about to read is is from a contemporary account written in uh, October or November of 1864 of what happened in Atlanta after General William Tecumseh Sherman and his Army of the Tennessee captured the city. Now, at that point, Atlanta lay prostrate, helpless, unable to resist, her defenders having been forced to abandon the poor city. And this account is from uh, George McDonnell, who, who was in and around Atlanta at the time. And he relayed this story to the publisher of The Countryman, a uh, southern periodical of the era. And this is what uh, McDonnell had to say recounting the experience of a uh, female Atlantan. And remember, this is three years into a brutal war. Quote, As soon as the Yankees obtained possession of the city, the officers began to hunt up comfortable quarters, and the lady of whom I speak found herself under the necessity of taking three of them as boarders, or of submitting to the confiscation of her house to the purpose of sheltering our foe. Uh, McDonald then recounts the uh, the lady's observation that the uh, the officers were gentlemanly and uh, actually helped her to sell her cows and hogs when she was forced to leave town. And now back to the quote. A neighbor of hers, whose husband had rendered himself obnoxious to the Yankees by his service to the South, was ordered by a Yankee general to vacate her premises in two hours, and a guard was stationed to prevent her from moving her effects. This lady appealed to General Sherman, who immediately ordered the removal of the guard and permitted her to remove or sell any or all of her furniture and other valuables at her discretion. The lady with whom I conversed was under the necessity of calling upon General Sherman after the publication of the Edict of Banishment, and she represents him as being very kind and conciliatory in his deportment towards her and others who visited her. He expressed much regret at the necessity which compelled him to order the citizens of Atlanta from their homes, but stated in justification of his course that he intended to make Atlanta a second Gibraltar, that when he completed his defensive works, it would be impregnable, and as no communication could be held with their friends in the South, they would suffer for food, that it was impossible for him to subsist his army and feed the citizens too. He thought it was humanity to send them out of the city where they could obtain necessary supplies. 
He took a little child of my friend in his arms. Oh, dear God, a child. The monster. And patted her rosy cheeks, calling her a poor little exile and saying he was sorry to have to drive her away from her comfortable home, but that war was a cruel and inexorable thing and its necessities compelled him to do many things which he heartily regretted. He remarked that it would be no disgrace to us if we were finally subjugated, as we certainly would be, as we had fought against four or five times our number, with a degree of valor which had excited the admiration of the world. He regarded the southern soldiers as the bravest in the world, and admitted that in a fair field fight, we could whip them two to our one. Uh, Yeah, I suspect that... um, That part was uh, perhaps embellished by the author. Now back to the quote. But he claimed for himself and his compeers the credit of possessing more strategic ability than our generals. She speaks in high terms of the discipline of the Yankee army, says that their privates are more afraid of their officers than our slaves are of their masters. No disorderly conduct to be seen anywhere. On the authority of a lady of unquestioned veracity and respectability, It will be seen that our barbarous foes are not entirely lost to all the dictates and impulses of humanity. Would to God that the exhibition of it were more frequent in their occurrence. End quote. Okay, now, uh, that actually didn't sound so bad, right? Uh, We have Sherman uh, ordering everyone out of town, uh, most likely having having learned from all the difficulties uh, he experienced in Memphis. Now, certainly uh, being forced to vacate your home would be, would be no picnic, but uh, as these things go, it sounds like he was a, a pretty reasonable occupier, right? So, uh, where do all the stories of Sherman's brutality come from? Well, uh, before reading that account, I made a point of saying that it was published and written in November 1864. Later in this episode, we're going to take a look at another contemporary account uh, from another southern capital, written only a few months later, and with a decidedly different tone. But as of November, there were a few things that hadn't happened yet, and most importantly, Sherman had not yet become a snidely uh, whiplash-level villain in the South. He was disliked as a Yankee, sure, Uh, but not the uh, epitome of Yankee villainy. Not yet. Hello and welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. Thanks for listening. This is part four of our look at William Tecumseh Sherman. Uh, And this will be our final uh, episode dealing with Sherman. And next, we'll be moving on to Nathan Bedford Forrest, the uh, Confederate cavalryman. In between then and now, though, there might be uh, another one-part episode slipped in. I haven't quite figured out exactly how we're going to do it. If you'd like to reach the show, you can email us at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com, gray with an E. Thanks again for listening, and thanks for your patience uh, in waiting in between episodes. Once again, this is William Tecumseh Sherman, Part 4. I hope you enjoy the show. The Confederates under the uh, overall command of John Bell Hood were forced to surrender Atlanta following a string of defeats highlighted by Peachtree Creek and Jonesboro. 
The latter was fought August 31st and September 1st, 1864. Now, Sherman had been trying to capture Atlanta by taking control of the railroads supplying the town and Hood's army. Up to that point, the efforts were mostly relatively small detachments that circled around the city and were uh, either countered by the rebels or did insufficient damage to permanently sever the rail lines. On August 25th, though, Sherman uh, threw a change-up, dispatching five corps to handle the job. Hood underestimated the force moving against him, and assigned only two corps, under William Hardee and Stephen Lee, to confront the federal movement. The rebels' August 31st attack was emphatically repulsed. Over 1,700 rebel casualties were offset by less than 200 Yankee losses. Sherman's counterattack the following day forced Hardee to withdraw, barely saving his army. The casualties were more proportionate on the second day, but the result was no better for the defenders. Having failed to secure the city's supply lines, Hood opted to withdraw during the night of September 1st rather than resist a siege, and he ordered the destruction of massive amounts of ammunition and supplies that the army couldn't carry with it or give to fleeing citizens. The resulting fires were famously depicted in uh, the movie Gone with the Wind and actually didn't have anything to do with Sherman, though he, he has been mistakenly blamed for them on occasion. The citizens of Atlanta were initially shocked to see that Hood was in retreat, uh, effectively abandoning the town. And as reality set in, the city's civic leaders made the decision to uh, preemptively surrender in an effort to limit the damage. Uh, The mayor's letter of surrender, which was intended originally for Sherman, but was actually received by uh, General Henry Slocum, Uh, Instead read, quote, Sir, the fortune of war has placed Atlanta in your hands. As mayor of the city, I ask protection to non-combatants and private property, end quote. And by 2 p.m. on September 2nd, Slocum and his men were inside Atlanta's city limits. Sherman arrived the next day, having decided that further pursuit of Hood's army was just not worth the effort. Now, for his part, Hood's next move Uh, would be an offensive into Tennessee, with intentions of cutting off Sherman's supply lines. Something along those lines uh, might have been effective before Atlanta fell, uh, but not after. A a frequent criticism of of Jefferson Davis is that he didn't give um, Nathan Bedford Forrest the the men and supplies necessary to take a, a serious run at cutting Sherman off. Instead, Forrest's raids were, uh, were more small scale, and that cavalry ace was mostly held back in defense of Mississippi, which just so happened to be Davis's home state. Now, Sherman's occupation of Atlanta was generally bloodless. There was some looting of shops uh, whose keepers had had left town, but uh, not very much violence. And deciding to convert Atlanta to a Union fort, Sherman ordered the evacuation of most of the remaining citizens which was accomplished during a ceasefire agreed between he and Hood. The vast majority of Atlanta's inhabitants had already left or rode one of two trains out of town, and the few who remained were either unable to evacuate due to ailments or age, or had occupations that made them necessary and valuable to the occupiers, and were therefore encouraged to stay. Now, Without any delay, Sherman set his men to converting Atlanta to a fortress, the second Gibraltar referred to in the opening passage. 
the existing rebel fortifications were significantly expanded, and new and improved artillery emplacements were scattered around the outskirts of the city. The forced evacuation drew the ire of Hood, uh, who complained in a public letter to Sherman. Of course, Sherman, he wasn't going to be lectured to by Hood or anyone else, uh, except maybe Ellen. So he ridiculed Hood's, quote, hypocritical appeals to God. And Sherman concluded, War is cruelty, and you can't refine it. God will judge us in due time, and he will pronounce whether it be more humane to fight with a town full of women and the families of a brave people at our back, or to remove them in time to places of safety among their friends and people. End quote. And to uh, calls for peace, Sherman replied, quote, You cannot have peace and a division of our country. When peace does come, you can call on me for anything. Then will I share with you the last cracker. End quote. Now, setting aside the racial slur, Sherman had uh, perfectly sound reasoning for the decision, as he explained to Halleck. Quote, we want all the houses of Atlanta for military storage and occupation. Contract the lines of defense, instead of embracing, as the lines now do, the vast suburbs. And the contraction of lines will make it necessary to destroy the very houses used by families as residences. Atlanta is a fortified town, was stubbornly defended, and fairly captured. As captors, we have a right to it. The residents here of a poor population would compel us to feed them or see them starve under our eyes. End quote. Sherman's stay in Atlanta would end up lasting for only about two months, and his men had expected to settle in for the winter, and many began constructing improvised shacks for that purpose. Uh, but that's not what Sherman ended up having in mind. Uh, he had some momentum going, and he wanted to keep it. He smelled blood and an opportunity to finish the war. He first proposed his new plan in a September 20th letter to Grant. Now, the original idea had been to use Atlanta as a sort of trap for destroying the rebel army uh, commanded by Joseph Johnston. But Hood was in command now, and Sherman just wasn't concerned about Hood. Uh, the Confederate general had, had already done himself enough damage. Hood tried to coax Sherman into chasing him, but Sherman wouldn't bite. Hood threatened Sherman's supply lines from Tennessee, but Sherman just didn't care. Sherman's new plan would shift the focus to pounding the civilians providing the material means for the rebel war effort, destroy farms, confiscate food and supplies, and break the will of the southern civilian population. It would take some harsh methods, no doubt about that. Methods that Sherman had disapproved of not long ago. But if that was what it took to restore the Union and put the rebellion to rest, so be it. The proposed implementation would begin with one of the uh, most famous, or notorious, campaigns of the war. The March to the Sea. Sherman would march southeast from Atlanta to Savannah on the Atlantic coast, leaving a path of destruction, very much by design, in his wake. He would voluntarily give up his supply lines for the march, negating Hood's best hope of turning the tide. After wrecking Georgia, he would turn north and march through the Carolinas, continuing the havoc before reuniting with Grant in Virginia and there defeating the Army of Northern Virginia. It was a concrete plan to end the war, and end it soon. 
Grant wasn't sold. They already had a plan. The two of them had worked it out in Cincinnati the prior year. They were going to focus on destroying rebel armies, a war of attrition. Now, it admittedly hadn't started out all that well, but everyone knew it would take time, and they were making progress. Hood's army had been significantly weakened, and Lee was pinned down in Petersburg. It was only a matter of time. And even Lincoln, an amateur but a quick study, was concerned about the risks of abandoning supply lines deep in enemy territory, with no support or relief force anywhere in the area. Wasn't Sherman unnecessarily courting disaster? Sherman, though, was supremely confident that he could pull it off. Quote, I wouldn't hesitate to cross the state of Georgia with 60,000 men, hauling some stores and depending on the country for the balance. Where a million of people find subsistence, my army won't starve. And taking Savannah would be huge. Quote, the possession of the Savannah River is more than fatal to the possibility of Southern independence. They may stand the fall of Richmond, but not all of Georgia. If you can whip Lee and I can march to the Atlantic, I think Uncle Abe will give us 20 days leave of absence to see the young folks. End quote. And Sherman emphasized the effect that his march would have on Southern morale. Quote, if the North can march an army right through the South, it is proof positive the North can prevail in this contest. I can make this march and make Georgia howl. End quote. Now, notwithstanding his doubts, Grant had complete faith in Sherman. Uh, if he says he can do it, he can do it. And it turns out Grant's assurance was good enough for Lincoln. So Sherman got Washington's approval for the march to the sea. Geographically, Atlanta is, uh, I guess you'd say, in the, the northwestern part of the center of Georgia. Savannah, the objective, is about 250 miles to the southeast, uh, on the coast near the South Carolina border. Sherman wasn't going to take his entire army. Instead, he selected 62,000 of his best men. Now, he needed units that were durable and could travel fast and light and that were capable of improvising. President Lincoln urged Sherman to include some of the new black regiments, but Sherman uh, resisted, saying, quote, I prefer some Negroes as pioneers, teamsters, cooks, and servants, Others gradually to experiment in the art of the soldier, beginning with duty as local garrisons. End quote. So by this point, he's no longer opposed to arming the freedmen altogether, but he wanted soldiers with uh, more experience for this particular mission. And Sherman was busy making preparations and planning over the next couple months, uh, arranging logistics and so forth. But somehow, the good old New York Times managed to get a hold of the details of his plans for the campaign to Savannah. Upon learning this, Grant acted immediately, ordering confiscation of, of any materials uh, related to the march uh, from the Times. And Sherman was, of course, furious. Setting aside how the New York Times got his plans, why would they want to publish them? The... The damn press, willing to sabotage the war effort to sell a few more papers. Did I mention that Sherman hated the press? Now, I know in this day and age, the idea that uh, a media outlet like the New York Times would accept and publish leaked secret information that could potentially harm the government, well, that seems preposterous. But the 1860s were a different time. 
So just prior to embarking, Sherman uh, reached out to Joe Brown, the governor of Georgia, with an offer. If Georgia would quit fighting, you know, abandon the war effort and withdraw from the Confederacy, Sherman wouldn't destroy everything in his path as he marched through Georgia. And he'd even pay for the food and supplies his army had every intention of taking uh, from the state and its citizens. Now, Brown, of course, refused. And so the army marched out of Atlanta in mid-November. The soldiers who thought that they were going to be camping in Atlanta for the winter had mostly packed their bags to join Sherman or were heading back to Tennessee. In a letter to his kids, Sherman assured them that if he were to lose his life while on campaign, which he did view as a realistic possibility, he had made arrangements to make sure that they would be taken care of. He was about to go dark, off the grid. Uh, Communications with Washington and with his family would be sporadic at best for the next few months. Now, as Sherman and his uh, four columns, ten miles long, started the march, they bid a fond farewell to Atlanta. And as the Federal Army left, uh, singing along with the bands to the tune of John Brown's body, they shelled the city, igniting numerous fires. So now this, this time, uh, the fires in Atlanta were Sherman's fault. And a Yankee soldier uh, with Sherman diarized, quote, Behind us lay Atlanta, smoldering and in ruins, the black smoke rising high in the air and hanging like a pall over the ruined city. All the pictures and verbal descriptions of hell I have ever seen never gave me half so vivid an idea of it as did this flame-wrapped city tonight. End quote. So Atlanta was effectively abandoned by that point, but news of the demolition spread throughout the South. Certainly, Governor Brown, um, who you will remember had just turned down Sherman's uh, generous offer, certainly he recognized that, to a certain extent, uh, this was meant as a message to him and the other leaders of the South a taste of what was to come. To Southerners, generally, Sherman was starting to become the cartoon villain that they would remember him as. Not just a damn Yankee, rotten like the rest of them, but a thoroughly despised scoundrel. The logistics for the campaign were a major endeavor. Other than extra rations in their weapons, the soldiers traveled, by necessity, as light as possible. No tents, for example. They wouldn't be comfortable, but they would be agile. The army brought with it less artillery than what Sherman would would ordinarily want, uh, one less thing to slow them down. Instead, they carried a mobile pontoon bridge with an expert engineering team. Now, even streamlined as it was and even carrying extra rations, the army was going to need to feed and supply itself without supply lines, Uh, which leads us to one of the most famous things about the campaign, the Bummers. They called themselves Billy Sherman's Raiders, and they comprised about 5% of the army. And their job was to make up for the absence of supply lines. Before beginning the campaign, Sherman commissioned custom, highly detailed maps outlining regional agricultural production throughout the state. 
which was absolutely brilliant when you think about it. And the bummers were tasked with securing as much of that agricultural production, among other things, as the army required. So working in small teams uh, so that they could cover more terrain, they were authorized by Sherman to confiscate food and livestock, horses, wagons, and similar items from the local population. In practice, they also frequently helped themselves to watches, jewelry, uh, any expensive women's clothing, and pretty much any other uh, personal property of value that wasn't nailed down, and sometimes stuff that was nailed down. The Bummers Collective Hall would prove to be uh, more than enough to feed Sherman's army. In fact, one of the most uh, offensive parts of the ordeal to Georgians was that the Bummers often took significantly more than the army actually needed, so that surplus provisions in the army's stores would sometimes end up rotting while the citizens of Georgia uh, faced what, what they could only assume was the prospect of starvation. And the result was thousands of refugees left with no food for the winter. Now, officially, Sherman discouraged looting of civilian homes and absconding with private property that wasn't of practical use to the army. However, he also didn't make any serious effort to stop it, though he was well aware that it was occurring. The orders that Sherman issued called for, quote, relentless devastation, end quote. Uh, A few stolen watches just weren't worth his attention. Along with commandeering food and supplies, the Bummers were also charged with uh, ruining railroads, machinery, and, and burning homes of suspected rebels. In the heart of Georgia, with only the Bummers themselves to judge, suspected rebels ended up including a substantial chunk of the population. Now, there was some rape and murder. Uh, Black women especially suffered from the bummers, but the outright uh, criminality was comparably less than in similar campaigns, and offenders who were caught in the act actually were punished. Now, the, the much more common offense was arson. When the march began, the burnings were mostly limited to structures that that did in fact have some sort of military value, and were connected to the the government, like courthouses. Uh, When homes were burned, it was because the owners refused to cooperate with the Yankees, or were known to be Confederates. As they progressed, though, the standard got much looser, and most homes that came in the bummer's path uh, ended up put to the flame. And of course, the destruction was by design. As Sherman put it, the point was to, quote, cut off their supplies, destroy their communications, and produce among the people of Georgia a thorough conviction of the personal misery which attends war and the utter helplessness and inability of their rulers to protect them. If that terror and grief and even want shall help to paralyze their husbands and fathers who are fighting us, it is mercy in the end, end quote. Mercy. Sherman genuinely believed that a no-holds-barred campaign to bring the war to a prompt end was, in the long run, in the South's best interests. Spare the rod and spoil Dixie. By the end of the war, the aggregate damage done by Sherman's army and its foraging parties was astronomical. Thousands of homes, farms, mills, barns, and most any other structure you can think of were burned to the ground, 
and rendered worthless throughout large sections of Georgia and South Carolina. Houses that were still standing were emptied of their furniture, and entire towns were left in ruins. Miles upon miles upon miles of railroad was destroyed. Economic historians have estimated that the South, uh, and especially Georgia, did not fully recover from the Civil War, and specifically from the damage dished out by Sherman's army, until World War II, 80 years later. Remember, there wasn't any post-Civil War uh, equivalent of the, the Marshall Plan carried out in the South. Reconstruction was, was mostly a, a political enterprise. Now, before turning away from the bummers, I want to read a contemporaneous account written by a female resident of Georgia just before Sherman arrived in Savannah. I think this account really emphasizes how, how Sherman's march, uh, by design, uh, brought the pain of war home to the Southern civilians. The, the days of having a picnic while watching a battle were, were long gone. And it also gives you a little bit of an idea why, well, why Southerners detested Sherman after the war. And this is an extended quote, so bear with me. Quote, I have been residing in Scriven County for several weeks past, and thought if there were any place secure from the enemy, it was here. It seems no place is so safe. They passed through this part of the country, committing great depredations, such as burning gin houses. She's talking about a cotton gin. Corn cribs, and even dwellings of those who had not courage to meet the dreaded foe. Some have no corn left. Others were more fortunate, as the Yankees were in a considerable hurry and could not visit every place. Watches and money were carried off in large quantities. One farmer suffered much by them. He buried his valuables in the graveyard, but was betrayed by one of his servants. So they carried off his gold and silver, his watches, and a large amount of Confederate money and bonds. Many have suffered in like manner. All the livestock was killed and carried off in some places. And she then describes how uh, Georgians are seeking refuge in North Carolina, Many were hiding in swamps because anyone caught out on the road by the bummers uh, would be stripped of valuables, or worse. And okay, quoting again. One of the citizens was severely whipped. They found him armed and gave him 200 lashes. Now, that sounds like a, uh, a Second Amendment violation to me. He has not since been heard from. The roads were strewn with dead horses, and several dead Yankees have been found. At last accounts, the enemy has surrounded Savannah. Fort McAllister has fallen. End quote. Predictably, Southerners took offense at the treatment. Interestingly, one of the things that really angered Southerners was that bummers killed almost all dogs they came into contact with. Now, their rationale was that dogs were used to catch runaway slaves. But the breed was irrelevant to the bummers. Family pets got the same treatment as bloodhounds. Now, it's impossible to say the exact number with any precision, but the estimates I've seen suggest that around 200 bummers were killed by southern civilians and partisans, which, uh, of course, Sherman viewed as murder. Typically, the way it went was that a forager who strayed too far from the rest of his party, or who got too familiar with the locals, would be found hanging from a tree and or with a slit throat. Brutal stuff. 
Uh, but when you consider the thousands of bummers who went out foraging, um, most more than once, they didn't fare too bad for being, for being miles away from the main body of the army in hostile territory. So a common tactic, the uh, limited number of Confederates in the area used to, uh, to slow Sherman down, was to plant mines and booby traps in the path of the army. And when a um, Yankee junior officer lost the bottom part of his leg to one such mine, Sherman began a new policy of having rebel POWs walk out in front of the army in any areas in which mines were suspected. Uh, Some listeners may note that this practice violates the Geneva Convention. But of course, the Geneva Convention Accord did not exist in 1864. Now, one of the, uh, the Sherman biographers that I read, and I think it was uh, Robert O'Connell, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, he theorized that the reason the bummers were able to be so successful was that the uh, military-aged men who would otherwise be likely to join up with guerrilla forces to, to bushwhack the enemy foragers uh, were for the most part already with uh, Lee's army in Virginia or with Hood in Tennessee. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense, and it's probably right. During the march to the sea, Sherman's army and the foraging parties that traveled along with it freed thousands of slaves along the way. The newly freed were now faced with a very difficult situation in that they didn't have any way to feed or shelter themselves. Many uh, followed the army, but Sherman wasn't eager to feed them. He didn't want the march slowed down, and he couldn't really spare the food since the army itself was already relying on on what it could commandeer from the locals. He did hire some former slaves as workers, but still, uh, he wasn't on board with the idea of arming and training the freed men yet. Lincoln, in his uh, matter-of-fact manner, wondered if a black man wasn't as good as a white man for stopping a bullet. And Sherman's response, quote, Yes, and a sandbag is better, but can a Negro do our skirmishing and picket duty? Can they improvise roads, bridges, sorties, flank movements, etc., like the white men? I say no, end quote. Now, he did come around to a certain extent. It was just a gradual, slow evolution. And it should be pointed out that Sherman was a proponent of the 40 acres and a mule that was intended to allow freedmen to support themselves. Of course, uh, that didn't really come to fruition, and Sherman probably wasn't really all that invested in the idea anyway. So on average, Sherman's army moved uh, right about 15 miles per day, and there was no mistaking where they had been and the path of destruction left in their wake. But the route the army would take next was left deliberately ambiguous, And Sherman was out of contact with Washington for extended periods of time, which very much stressed out President Lincoln. In a famous observation, Lincoln complained, I can know the hole he went in at, but I can't tell you what hole he will come out of. Now, Sherman did turn up on December 13th, crossing the Ogeechee River and threatening Fort McAllister, 15 miles from Savannah. They crossed on a bridge constructed by the Engineering Corps, using wood taken from the demolished homes of Georgians. Fort McAllister was defended by William Hardee, and he had ordered the narrow approach to the fort flooded and seeded with landmines. After ordering the Confederate POWs to remove the mines, 
and closing in on the fort itself, Sherman discovered that Hardy didn't have the resources to offer a strong defense, and the fort fell with relative ease after a short, albeit intense, fight. Newly arrived General P.G.T. Beauregard was heading up the defense of Savannah. Now, after learning that Fort McAllister had been lost, and that Savannah was therefore uh, now exposed to assault by uh, Union Navy guns, Beauregard determined that the city could not be successfully defended, and he ordered a withdrawal. Sherman made clear in a letter to uh, Savannah officials that the, the city faced a stark choice. They could welcome the army in, accept the occupation, and obey Union officers, in which case they would be well-treated, or they could resist, in which case, quote, I shall make little effort to restrain my army burning to avenge the national wrong, end quote. Pretty straightforward, right? Cooperate, and you'll be fine. Resist, and we'll burn the city to the ground. The leaders of Savannah decided that the, uh, the former option was preferable, and they surrendered the city on December 21st. And Sherman did hold up his side of the bargain. Numerous military leaders throughout history have realized that, that winning without fighting is the ideal outcome. As Sherman put it in a letter to his, his kids, Of course I must fight when the time comes, but whenever a result can be accomplished without battle, I prefer it. End quote. Sherman benefited from the struggleless surrender in that he didn't have to expose his army to any unnecessary risk. And I also genuinely think that, uh, all things being equal, Sherman viewed not having to inflict suffering on the people of Savannah as a positive in and of itself, just so long as he could achieve the desired outcome. And, of course, Savannah benefited from not being destroyed, one of the few cities occupied by Sherman's army that could make that claim. And to this day, Savannah retains an uh, antebellum historic character in, in some districts that many uh, southern cities just don't have because the uh, old stuff wasn't destroyed during the war like in so many other southern cities. So with Savannah captured, Sherman sent another famous telegraph to President Lincoln, this one on December 22nd. Quote, I beg to present you as a Christmas gift, the city of Savannah, with 150 heavy guns and plenty of ammunition also about 25,000 bales of cotton, end quote. So the march to the sea was a resounding success on every level. The coastal city of Savannah was in Union hands and at little cost, and Sherman had more than made the psychological point that he was aiming for. And so now it was time for the encore. In Savannah, he was back in communication with Washington, and with Grant in particular, and Grant had a pretty good idea what he wanted Sherman to do next. The Union Navy uh, completely dominated the coastal waters, making transport by sea quicker and easier than moving by land. Other than the, uh, the off chance of a freak storm destroying the transport boats, kamikaze style, it was low risk, high reward. Once Sherman's army was combined with the Army of the Potomac, under Grant and Meade, Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia and the Confederate capital at Richmond, would be completely overwhelmed. And that's all she wrote. Sherman had different ideas, though. 
Georgia had howled. But the southern state that most deserved punishment, he reasoned, was South Carolina, the seat of secession. By marching through the Carolinas to combine with Grant, Sherman could continue the job begun in Georgia, beating the rebellious spirit out of South Carolinians and Tar Heels, one incinerated farmhouse at a time. The objective, as he told his men, was to whip the rebels, to humble their pride, to follow them to their inmost recesses and make them fear and dread us. Fear is the beginning of wisdom. Now, that sounds like something uh, Darth Vader might say, but uh, there's no mistaking that the mission was a success. South Carolina, at least the portions along Sherman's path, was vigorously destroyed. There was no let-up after Georgia. If anything, the pace intensified. Now, Grant once again came around to Sherman's way of thinking, or at least he, he trusted Sherman's judgment enough to uh, approve the march. And so they left in January 1865, uh, about 80,000 strong now, uh, with a concealed goal of taking Columbia, the capital of South Carolina. To get there, he would travel through the swamps the rebels believed to be impassable, or at least impassable in the winter. Now, that assessment may have have been more or less correct if it was still 1861. But by 1865, Sherman's engineers were were just unbelievably good. Swollen creeks and a little mud uh, weren't going to slow these guys down. Now, to keep the rebels off balance, before leaving, he sent red herring forces back toward Atlanta and toward Charleston, South Carolina. Now, for psychological purposes, Charleston would have been the next ideal target. Now, it's not the capital of South Carolina, but it is the most prominent city. And more importantly, it was the heart of the rebellion, the equivalent of uh, Boston in the Revolution. But Charleston was, was just too far out of the way. After all, the ultimate objective remained uniting with Grant, destroying Lee's army, and capturing Richmond. And, you know, maybe burn a few things along the way. No big deal. So Columbia was going to have to do. With little resistance, Sherman captured Columbia in February. Uh, The rebel forces in the area evacuated ahead of the army. And as in Savannah, city leaders decided uh, to preemptively surrender in an effort to avoid destruction. The mayor met with Sherman and asked that uh, civilians be unmolested and private property be respected. Now, Sherman was receptive to the request. Columbia had surrendered. No need for punishment. He reportedly told the mayor, upon accepting the surrender, quote, Not a finger's breadth, Mr. Mayor, of your city shall be harmed. You may lie down to sleep, satisfied that your town shall be as safe in my hands as if wholly in your own. It will become my duty to destroy some of the public or government buildings, but I will reserve this performance to another day. It shall be done tomorrow, provided the day be calm. End quote. That sounds reasonable, right? It had worked in Savannah, and the war's almost over anyway. Now, not to give anything away, but that's not exactly how it went down. In fact, for early 20th century Southern historians, uh, making the case that Sherman engaged in in wanton destruction for no purpose other than to humiliate and degrade the defenseless South, Columbia, South Carolina is uh, the prosecution's exhibit A. 
Marching into the town, the Union soldiers sang a foreboding song. Hail Columbia, happy land. If I don't burn you, I'll be damned. By that point, they had made uh, burning buildings to the ground into something of an art form. Sherman chimneys, a nickname for the remains of farmhouses where only the the brick chimney still stood, uh, were now monuments to the meticulousness of the Union soldiers all throughout the South. Okay, I'm going to refer to another primary source, uh, another extended quotation, also a contemporaneous account. Uh, This one from William Gilmore Sims, a Southern writer who, uh, fortunately for historians, I suppose, happened to be living in Columbia at the time when Sherman arrived. You see, as it turns out, Sherman, well, he reneged on his promise to Columbia's mayor. And he kind of had a reason for that. Confederate cavalry under General Wheeler was operating in the vicinity of Columbia, and they were, they were harassing Sherman's skirmishers. There wasn't any effort by the citizens to defend the city. And, uh, of course, the citizens of Columbia, uh, they didn't know anything about Wheeler's cavalry and, and couldn't have done anything about it anyway. But that didn't matter. Columbia was no longer under Sherman's protection. So, Sims is not exactly what you would call an unbiased source. And he's a Southerner, and he's, he's obviously upset uh, about what happens to Columbia. And that's something we need to keep in mind, but uh, we can't completely discount his account on that basis alone. Like I said, this is, uh, this is an extended quote, so bear with me, but I think Sims's account paints a, a pretty vivid picture and really helps explain why why Southerners were bitter over Sherman's march uh, through the South for so very long after the war. So here's William Gilmore Sims discussing Sherman's occupation of Columbia, South Carolina. God has permitted an invading army to penetrate our country, almost without impediment, to rob and ravage our dwellings, and to commit three-fifths of our city to the flames. The schools of learning... The shops of art and trade, of invention and manufacture, shrines equally of religion, benevolence, and industry, are all buried together in one congregated ruin. Humiliation spreads her ashes over our homes and garments, and the universal wreck exhibits only one common aspect of despair. The discipline of the soldiers upon their first entry into the city was perfect and most admirable. There was no disorder or irregularity among the line of march, showing that their officers had them completely in hand. But if the entrance into town and while on duty was indicative of admirable drill and discipline, such ceased to be the case the moment the troops were dismissed. Then, whether by tacit permission or direct command, their whole deportment underwent a sudden and rapid change. The Saturnalia soon began. Hardly had the troops reached the head of Main Street when the work of pillage was begun. Stores were broken open within the first hour after their arrival, and gold, silver, jewels, and liquors eagerly sought. The authorities, officers, soldiers all seemed to consider it a matter of course, and woe to him who carried a watch with a gold chain pendant, or who wore a choice hat, or overcoat, or boots, or shoes. He was stripped 
in the twinkling of an eye. It is computed that, from first to last, 1,200 watches were transferred from the pockets of their owners to those of the soldiers. Persis shared the same fate. He then tells how uh, Catholic and Episcopal churches were also looted by soldiers, but says that a few Catholic uh, Union soldiers admirably intervened to protect church property, and Sherman ordered some of the church property returned. Uh, Sims, our author here, was particularly disturbed by the treatment uh, of a Columbia convent. The um, Mother Superior requests and receives a a guard for the protection of the nuns and of the uh, convent's property, but the soldiers assigned as guards removed all the valuables themselves uh, after the officer in charge explained to the Mother Superior, and uh, Sims is, is quoting the officer, uh, so this is a quote within a quote and is obviously um, something he heard uh, secondhand. Anyway, Sims quotes the uh, the officer as saying, quote, I must tell you, my sister, that Columbia is a doomed city. And then the uh, officer disappears and the ransacking commences. Uh, OK, this is uh, this is Sims writing again. Quote, but the reign of terror did not begin till night. Among the first fires at evening was one about dark. Almost at the same time, a body of the soldiers, scattered over the eastern outskirts of the city, fired severally the dwellings of Mr. Secretary Trenholm, General Wade Hampton, Dr. John Wallace, J.U. Adams, Mrs. Stark, Mrs. English, and many others. Sims is uh, pointing out that the the homes of prominent uh, Confederates or um, their families were targeted for burning, and continuing now, some 20 fires in full blast, enveloping in flames almost every section of the devoted city. And then Sims uh, next explains how the fires were uh, started by soldiers soaking cotton bales in turpentine, um, and that high winds uh, spread the uh, flames throughout the entire city. Local firefighters attempted to put out the blazes, uh, according to Sims, but then uh, drunk soldiers stopped them from doing so. And uh, by midnight, the entire main street was a solid wall of fire. And this is directly from Sims again. Quote, Very grand and terrible. Beyond description was the awful spectacle. It was the blending of a range of burning mountains stretched in a continuous series of more than a mile. Throughout the whole of this terrible scene, the soldiers continued their search after spoil. The houses were severally and soon gutted of their contents. Hundreds of iron safes warranted impenetrable to fire and the burglar, it was soon satisfactorily demonstrated, were not Yankee-proof. And then Sims recounts that all silverware or uh, anything else of value that could could uh, easily be carried, uh, with new clothes and shoes, uh, etc., and all the alcohol in the town were taken by the soldiers. Uh, but that led to uh, dozens of dead soldiers uh, who were too uh, drunk to escape the flames. And here's the uh, final quotation from Sims. Quote, Ladies were hustled from their chambers, their ornaments plucked from their persons, their bundles from their hands. It was in vain that the mother appealed for the garments of her children. They were torn from her grasp and hurled into the flames. Women bearing off their trunks were seized, despoiled, In a moment, the trunk burst asunder with the stroke of an axe or gun butt. 
the contents laid bare, rifled of all objects of desire, and the residue sacrificed to the fire. End quote. Uh, as uh, Sims recounted, the uh, Union soldiers got a hold of a uh, significant quantity of booze in Colombia, and they went wild. Yankees gone wild. Um, you can uh, purchase the uh, special edition DVD featuring Snoop Dogg. And uh, during the uh, the wild rumpus, they torched the standard uh, government buildings and homes of Confederates and, and anything uh, else of conceivable military value. Uh, but where the fires really started to get out of hand was when uh, numerous cotton bales caught fire and aided by uh, whipping winds, inconveniently, uh, spread to the point where the flames were, were out of control and a thousand or more homes of citizens were also burned down. Uh, so between the drunkenness and the inferno, the, the citizens of, of Colombia looked on in horror as their town was utterly destroyed. And there's been some debate over the extent to which the fires that burned down the entire blocks were intentionally started and, and as, a, as to how they got quite so out of control. And depending on who you believe, it may have been drunken soldiers who were, who were partying a little too hard or freed slaves exacting a slice of revenge or townsfolk uh, burning down their, uh, their own town out of uh, spite. You know, the proverbial uh, cutting off your, your nose to spite your face, so to speak. So in response to complaints from Columbia's uh, leading citizens, Sherman replied, quote, I did not burn your town, nor did my army. Your brothers, sons, husbands, and fathers set fire to every city, town, and village in the land when they fired on Fort Sumter. That fire, kindled then and there by them, has been burning ever since and reached your houses last night. End quote. Obviously, that's not, uh, that's not much of a denial, but more of a uh, you-had-it-coming. You know, this, this hurts, hurts me more than it hurts you. And Sherman also uh, pinned the blame on the governor of South Carolina, saying, Your governor is responsible for this. Whoever heard of an evacuated city left a depot of liquor for an army to occupy? End quote. Uh, I, I really like that one. It's the governor's fault for uh, leaving booze in town for my guys to get a hold of. And Sherman uh, next asserted that uh, Colombia had been burned down by... Um, Ukrainian oligarchs, but um, nobody really knew what that meant in 1865. Now, after the war, Sherman maintained that he had not ordered the fires, but that they didn't um, exactly break his heart either, or as he put it, though I never ordered it and never wished it, I have never shed many tears over the event because I believe it hastened what we all fought for, the end of the war. And that uh, would seem to conflict a little bit with the, the statement that Sherman had made to the, the mayor of uh, Savannah, uh, threatening to burn down the uh, town if, if the citizens resisted. But yeah, we'll give Sherman the benefit of the doubt here. So as, as has often been noted, Sherman, he did order some of his men to put out the flames that were still raging uh, the following morning. Our uh, Columbia writer, Sim, speculated that this was because the fires had become a danger to the Union soldiers and not out of any uh, desire to uh, aid the, uh, the city of Columbia. However, Sherman also provided food from Union stores to help feed the families whose homes had been destroyed. Uh, 
So indirectly, the farmers of Georgia and South Carolina contributed to the relief effort of their um, newly homeless compatriots in Columbia. Postbellum, Sherman would conclude that the fall and destruction of Columbia marked the end of the war for all intents and purposes. As reported by Sherman biographer and historian Robert O'Connell, Columbia was one of 18 South Carolina cities and towns that were uh, effectively raised by Sherman's army. And the countryside nearby the, the army's path didn't, didn't fare much better. A Union soldier recounted of the roughly 50-mile path of destruction uh, on either side of uh, Sherman's army that a crow could not fly across without a haversack. Columbia, though, as South Carolina's capital, was by far the most prominent target, and its burning probably contributed more to uh, Dixie's hatred of William Tecumseh Sherman that continued for, for more than 100 years after the war than any other single event. Now, even so, it's worth pointing out that for all the destruction, Columbia was small potatoes compared to some of the pain inflicted on civilian targets that occurred in the 20th century. Now, whether you're talking about uh, Nanking, Dresden, Tokyo, uh, the lists could get uh, pretty long. Well, I think that's enough about Columbia. Uh, Sherman continued the march north, and as you might have guessed, he next moved into North Carolina. By design, Sherman uh, intended to go a little easier on, on North Carolina, which uh, had been you know, had, had been much less gung-ho about secession than its sister state to the South. North Carolina might be more receptive to dropping out of the war, Sherman reasoned. Uh, there was a better chance of, of winning the hearts and minds. So by this point, the army was trailed by something like 25,000 non-combatants, consisting mostly of freed slaves and white refugees left with uh, no means of support. Fortunately, though, on March 11th, they arrived in Fayetteville, which was taken without a struggle, and marked Sherman's reconnection with Washington, as both regular communications and supply lines were restored. Now, you may be thinking, uh, as Sherman's army has marched all the way across Georgia, then from the southern to the northern border of South Carolina, unopposed, and now into North Carolina, where is the Confederate Army? Well, the answer to that question is that uh, after a, a few months under the management of uh, John Bell Hood, there wasn't a whole heck of a lot left of the Army of Tennessee. Hood ran it off a, a cliff in its namesake state. And then Joseph Johnston got assigned the task of, of salvaging the wreckage. He managed to cobble together about 20,000 veteran soldiers to oppose Sherman, but uh, of course that, that force was woefully insufficient, not to mention undersupplied, and they weren't able to do much more than harass the Yankees with sniper fire. Near Bentonville, Johnston nearly caught Sherman with his army divided, but Sherman and his uh, subordinates figured out what was going on early enough to uh, avoid getting tangled up in a large engagement. Yeah, Sherman was uh, smart enough to avoid trading punches when, when he knew he was way, way up on the cards. Yeah, regardless, Johnson uh, didn't have the strength to uh, land a knockout blow at this point in the war anyway. And uh, Sherman took Goldsboro on March 23rd 
uh, again with, with very little difficulty. Over the next few days, the Army drew closer and closer to Meade, Grant, and the Army of the Potomac, close enough that Sherman was able to hop on a train and travel north for a meeting with Lincoln and Grant at Grant's headquarters for the purpose of discussing what now seemed was the inevitable end of the war. It was a a consequential meeting, and one of the topics discussed was how the defeated rebels should be treated. Sherman recorded Lincoln as favoring, quote, most liberal and honorable peace terms. No one punished. Treat them liberally all around, end quote. In the president's view, as recounted by Sherman, the South should be welcomed back into the Union like the uh, prodigal son. The war had been punishment enough for the Southerners. There was no need to humiliate the proud South further. Uh, Sherman wholeheartedly agreed with this view, uh, saying of Lincoln, quote, Of all the men I ever met, he seemed to possess more of the elements of greatness combined with goodness than any other, end quote. Now, Sherman assumed that the, the merciful peace described by the president at that meeting would, in fact, be the government's policy. As events would play out, though, this assumption would end up uh, causing Sherman some heartburn. So the much-anticipated rendezvous with the Army of the Potomac proved unnecessary. After a, a desperate attempt to escape Petersburg and join forces with, with Johnston, Lee was forced to surrender the Army of Northern Virginia to Grant at Appomattox on April 9th, 1865. Uh, technically, the war wasn't over yet, though. Uh, Sherman, back in North Carolina with his army, still had some uh, mop-up duty to take care of. Specifically, he needed to finish off Joseph Johnston. The only real threat the rebels could still present was to disband the armies, form up small guerrilla units, and harass the Union forces occupying the South. That scenario could have uh, become very ugly in a hurry. And there was quite a bit of talk uh, along those lines, mostly from junior officers. But the leaders of the rebel armies, most notably including Robert E. Lee, but also Nathan Bedford Forrest and Joseph Johnston, were adamantly opposed to it. Guerrilla warfare would just make things harder for the Southern citizenry, and, and they'd had it hard enough. Johnston and Jefferson Davis, who was uh, accompanying him at that point, knew that the jig was up and sent a letter to Sherman requesting a meeting to discuss terms. Sherman was receptive, responding sincerely, quote, I really desire to save the people of North Carolina the damage they would sustain by the march of this army. End quote. And they were all set for the armistice meeting when Sherman received news that would completely change, well, completely change everything. The uh, complexion of the peace process, reconstruction, and, and really American history, at least for the final few decades of the 19th century. Abraham Lincoln, in all likelihood one of the very few men in American history who could have ushered the nation through the Civil War to come out the other side in one piece, had been assassinated by John Wilkes Booth, the worst friend the South ever had. Now, notwithstanding the earth-shattering news, the meeting between Sherman and Johnston eventually went forward, with Johnston delegated full negotiating authority by Jefferson Davis and Sherman operating under the, the continuing assumption that Union peace policy remained consistent 
with what President Lincoln had so recently told him. So based on that assumption, Sherman offered uh, magnanimous peace terms in return for uh, Johnston's surrender. The surrendering soldiers would be treated respectfully, uh, allowing them to retain the, the dignity Sherman genuinely believed that they had earned on the battlefield. And Confederates who surrendered would avoid any threat of criminal punishment and would be allowed to rejoin the Union as citizens as long as they swore to obey uh, United States law. And the governments of the southern states could remain in place and continue functioning, now back under the Union umbrella. Davis and Johnston were, of course, glad to accept these terms. And so the men shook hands, thinking that they had a deal, and they returned to their respective armies to begin carrying out the terms. Now, to Sherman, these terms made perfect sense. There really wasn't anything to be gained through further punishing the South, particularly after the the pain he had just personally inflicted upon South Carolina and Georgia. Further harshness would be, as Sherman put it, quote, like slashing away at the crew of a sinking ship. Even more, a northern focus on retribution would be counterproductive, just inflaming tensions and inviting another conflict in the future once the South regained the ability to fight. Now, in Sherman's mind, the victorious Union should focus its efforts on helping the South to heal, and with it, the entire country. So the obvious comparison from uh, more recent history is the uh, comparative peace terms after World War I and World War II. The harsher terms imposed at Versailles left Germany broken and bitter, and a generation later itching for another fight. And I know there's some uh, some debate nowadays about whether the Treaty of Versailles was was really quite so punitive as, as what 20th century commentators uh, maintain, and, and whether it really did lead to World War II. But for our purposes, the purposes of this analogy, we're, we're going to assume the traditional view is, is pretty much correct. So by way of comparison, after World War II, the Allies helped Germany, or you know at least West Germany, to rebuild. And the amazingly quick economic recovery that resulted gave the Germans something to focus on, you know, other than revenge. In the uh, long run, I think you can reasonably say that it, it worked out better for everybody. But the thing is, and the thing Sherman didn't consider, was that sometimes the political and psychological need to chasten a defeated foe is just too great. Lincoln had the political capital to resist the desire for retribution that pervaded among the radical Republicans in Washington. His successor, Andrew Johnson, did not. And he wasn't really going to be running the show anyway. Sherman sent a report of the agreed terms of surrender to General Grant and to freshly sworn in President Johnson. He received a response from someone else, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. And Stanton was angry. Uh, According to Stanton, Sherman didn't have authority to negotiate terms that touched on politics, which, you know, is probably true, technically. But Sherman thought that he was just doing what Lincoln wanted, furthering the policy of the administration. But what Sherman didn't know is that that wasn't the policy anymore. Stanton had uh, appointed himself de facto commander-in-chief, and he intended to exact a pound of flesh. Uh, not kiss and make up. No, the terms were unconditional surrender or nothing. 
But just firmly rebuking Sherman via a written response, well, that wasn't good enough for Edwin Stanton. He also ordered Grant to relieve Sherman of command. That's right. Thanks for winning the war, uh, but we don't trust you anymore. And as if the humiliation of losing his command wouldn't be enough, Stanton leaked a story to the New York Times. Yeah, uh, seriously. He leaked it to the New York Times. Some things never change, right? So he leaked a story to the Times that spun the whole ordeal as an effort by Sherman to facilitate the escape of high-ranking Confederates like Jefferson Davis. And Stanton, in his, uh, you know, his leak, even suggested that Sherman was getting a kickback and might not be loyal to the Union. It was the, you know, that Confederate gold. Sherman was going to get some of that Confederate gold. And predictably, the story grew legs. And before long, the question of whether Sherman was, was a traitor was being, was being bandied about all, all around the northern press. So uh, to us, this sounds absurd and, and really, really kind of stupid on Stanton's part. That sort of treatment, historically anyway, is the kind of thing that invites a, a military coup, especially given the, the instability of wartime generally and the recent loss of Lincoln. Think about it. You have, uh, at a time where the um, constitutionally elected president is no more, you have a freshly victorious general with an army full of, of hard-nosed veterans who are, quite frankly, more loyal to their commander than to the current civil authorities. And those same civil authorities decide to try to humble that commander by forcing him to relinquish his command in response to charges of disloyalty. Now, to me, that sounds awfully similar to the start of uh, one of the Roman civil wars. You know, the one where Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon, uh, which, by the way, uh, you know, didn't end well for the senators trying to take away Caesar's army. Now, fortunately for Stanton, though, Sherman wasn't, uh, wasn't the type to supersede the civil uh, authorities. He wasn't going to uh, allow the insult to go in unanswered, but he, he also wasn't going to respond with his army. Interesting as that might have been. Now, Edwin Stanton was, was the kind of, uh, you know, uh, vindictive, two-faced manipulator that, that have flourished in politics since the, the dawn of time. In 1862, he promised McClellan that he would be his most vociferous advocate in Washington. And then he promptly stabbed him in the back almost immediately after being confirmed as Secretary of War in uh, place of Simon Cameron. And uh, Shelby Foote, uh, just a, a temporary uh, sidetrack here, Shelby Foote does a good job painting a picture of, of Edwin Stanton. Foote tells a story of how, as Simon Cameron's legal advisor, you know, the former Secretary of War, Stanton had, quote, helped to charge and fuse the bomb that blew him out of the War Department and the Cabinet, while Stanton himself was sucked into the resultant vacuum and set ensconced as successor before all the bits of wreckage had hit the ground. Stanton had done devious things in his time. A corporation lawyer, he delighted in also taking criminal cases when challenging and profitable enough. His fees were large, and when one prospective client protested, Stanton asked, Do you think I would argue the wrong side for less? For a murder defense, he once took as his fee the accused man's only possession, the house he lived in. When he had won the case and was about to convert the mortgage into cash, 
the man tried to persuade him to hold off, saying that he would be ruined by the foreclosure. You deserve to be ruined, Stanton told him, for you were guilty. He came at many people like a tiger, especially those within his department who showed less devotion to work than he himself did. He did not care whose toes he stepped on. Individuals are nothing, he declared. To a man who came demanding release for a friend locked up on suspicion of treason, Stanton roared, If I tap that little bell, I can send you to a place where you will never hear the dogs bark, and by heaven, I'll do it if you say another word. End quote. Uh, Stanton also referred to Lincoln, who you know was his boss, as that long-armed creature, or a low-cunning clown, or that giraffe. So as part of his uh, multifaceted and unprovoked attack on Sherman, Stanton directed Henry Halleck to order junior officers who had been under Sherman's command to simply stop obeying Sherman's orders. Sherman uh, was completely blindsided by all of this when it started getting back to him. And the army, including, or or maybe especially those same junior officers that Stanton wanted to um, disobey Sherman, they were furious over the insult to their chief. Halleck received a a not-so-subtle warning that Edwin Stanton would be wise to avoid contact with the men under Sherman's command, so as to avoid the risk of, uh, quote, loss of life or violence. Instead of refusing to obey Sherman, the men refused to salute Halleck. Sherman actually spoke with them to try to, to get everyone calmed down, which he more or less managed to do. But there was no question that there was extremely bad blood between uh, Sherman's army uh, and Sherman himself and Edwin Stanton. Sherman wasn't particularly fond of Stanton before, but now he he genuinely hated him uh, on a level previously reserved for the uh, the press. Returning now to the end of the war, uh, the surrender was completed April 26th, and it was apparent that, at least for a while, Edwin Stanton was going to be uh, effectively the dictator of uh, Union peace policy. Sherman made clear that, that he thought abandoning Lincoln's approach was an error, saying, quote, I believe that the general government of the United States has made a mistake, but that is none of my business. Mine is a different task, end quote. For the most part, Sherman took the high road. Politics wasn't a general's business anyway. Uh, he already knew politicians were snakes, other than, you know, Senator Sherman from Ohio, of course. So, uh, you know, Stanton wasn't surprising. Meanwhile, Edwin Stanton made a point of denouncing Sherman in the national press, which, of course, was not inclined to be sympathetic towards Sherman anyway. And, and so it became uh, fashionable among the uh, radicals in Washington to accuse Sherman of treason. It's probably an asset of Vladimir Putin. Sherman defended himself in, in a letter to Grant, uh, written two days after the surrender, in which we will quote uh, directly, because it, it pretty perfectly lays out how Sherman was thinking at this point. Quote, I did think my rank, if not past services, entitled me at least to trust that the Secretary of War would keep secret what was communicated for the use of none but the Cabinet, until further inquiry could be made, instead of giving publicity to it along with documents which I never saw. We should not draw a people into anarchy 
and it is simply impossible for our military power to reach all the masses of their unhappy country. I confess, I didn't desire to drive General Johnston's army into bands of armed men, going about without purpose and capable only of infinite mischief. Now, that's an important point. The prospect of former Confederates taking up guerrilla warfare was was very real and very uh, frightening to someone like Sherman, who had uh, some experience with the subject. Back to uh, Sherman's letter, quote, I have never in my life questioned or disobeyed an order, though many and many a time have I risked my life, health, and reputation in obeying orders, not to my liking. Sherman then explains that the subordinate officers in his army will learn with pain and amazement that I am deemed insubordinate and wanting in common sense and have brought discredit upon our government. And he then brings up the fact that he had just led uh, 70,000 men in good order through hostile country believed to be impassable. Quote, I do not wish to boast of this, after he boasted about it, but I do say that it entitled me to the courtesy of being consulted before publishing to the world a proposition rightfully submitted to higher authority for adjudication, and then accompanied by statements which invited the dogs of the press to be let loose upon me. Okay, this, uh, this next part is good. It is true that non-combatants, men who sleep in comfort and security while we watch on the distant lines, are better able to judge than we poor soldiers, who rarely see a newspaper, hardly hear from our families, or stoop long enough to draw our pay. Uh, nice touch of sarcasm. And, and now for the, uh, the money line, the one that makes it into all the history books. Quote, I envy not the task of reconstruction. And Sherman put quotes around reconstruction there. I envy not the task of reconstruction and am delighted that the Secretary of War has relieved me of it. Sherman then adds a uh, postscript. As Mr. Stanton's most singular paper has been published, I demand that this also be made public, referring to the letter to Grant, though I am in no manner responsible to the press, but to the law and my proper superiors, end quote. So Stanton had done what, in today's terms, we might describe as leaking classified information to the media uh, to try to make Sherman look bad. Something that, uh, at least in theory, can get you in a lot of trouble. And Sherman was justifiably upset. My take on this is that Stanton probably viewed Sherman as a, a potential political rival who would not be on the radical Republican side of, uh, of just about any issues. And so Stanton wanted to discredit Sherman politically before he had the opportunity to become a, uh, a true threat. Of course, Sherman had absolutely no interest in getting involved in civilian politics, but Sherman or Stanton didn't know that. Now, Grant, the recipient of the letter that we just read, recognized that the Sherman-Stanton feud had the potential to get out of hand to the detriment of the country at large. And so Grant tried to convince his, his friend and subordinate to uh, agree to a rapprochement with the Secretary of War. I kind of doubt that Sherman was receptive to that idea anyway, but any chance of, of reconciliation evaporated when Sherman was called uh, before the notorious Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War on May 22nd and uh, disgracefully attacked by Stanton's political allies. Once again, he was publicly accused of having betrayed the country uh, for the benefit of, of his old Confederate buddies. It's worth noting, though, that little brother John was a sitting United States senator, and father-in-law Thomas Ewing 
still had plenty of friends and plenty of pull in Washington. So Sherman was, was not without defenders. So what I guess you might call the uh, crescendo of the dispute with Stanton came on May 24th at the Victory Parade in Washington. Sherman got the chance to lead his army on a march through town, cheered by an adoring crowd the entire way. A reporter on the scene recounted how when Sherman appeared before President Johnson and offered a salute, the place went nuts with applause and screams of appreciation, which uh, Sherman would uh, subsequently describe as as the single most uh, joyous moment of his life. And shortly thereafter, while meeting with Johnson and uh, Grant and Stanton, uh, after Sherman uh, shook hands with the president and with his old friend Grant, Stanton, too, offered up a handshake, and without saying a single word, but with an icy, uh, disgusted expression on his face, Sherman deliberately refused Stanton's hand. And that was as far as he thought that it needed to go. Sherman's farewell address to his soldiers is noteworthy in that it includes some passages that sound an awful lot like the, the speeches Confederate leaders like Lee and, and Forrest were giving to their men. Uh, to sum up, the war is over. It's time to defer to the civil authorities and focus on living productive private lives. Uh, as Sherman put it, I think that the interest of the whole country demands that when troubles arise, they should be determined by the courts of law and not by the force of the musket. Our work is done. You have been good soldiers. You will make good citizens. Predictably, there were calls for Sherman to take up politics. But as we said, he, he didn't have any interest. To this day, an unequivocal, no-wiggle-room rejection of the idea of seeking office is sometimes referred to as Sherman-esque. Now, President Johnson tried to enlist Sherman in an attempt to get rid of uh, Edwin Stanton, with Sherman to take over as the new Secretary of War. But Sherman politely declined, though, uh, though a plot against Edwin Stanton was one of the few things that you might think would have tempted him into the, into the political fray. And he also avoided getting involved in Reconstruction as much as possible. Sherman's role in the South was limited to, to sincere efforts to help the devastated population and to heal the, uh, the deep wounds the war had left, such as when he traveled to Savannah to uh, oversee food distribution. And Sherman was also a popular public speaker, emphasizing the uh, patriotism and encouraging national unity. Unlike many of the heroes of the Civil War, Sherman's military career did not come to an end in 1865. When the war ended, the country's attention turned west, and Sherman played a major role in westward expansion. Within a, a few months after the war, uh, Sherman was appointed commander of the Military Division of the Mississippi, which encompassed the, the massive area uh, from the Mississippi River to the Rocky Mountains. Uh, he set up his headquarters in St. Louis, uh, joined by Ellen and their six children, and very soon thereafter he found himself leading up a major national project in the form of the Transcontinental Railroad. During the war, Congress had passed the Pacific Railroad Act, which contemplated a single rail line stretching from Omaha, Nebraska, to San Francisco. Obviously, very little had been accomplished to that point, but in peacetime, the resources were again available for the ambitious endeavor. In general, the plan that Sherman was charged with carrying out was to build 
two separate lines, the Union Pacific, which would stretch west from Omaha, and the Kansas Pacific, stretching west from Kansas City. And the idea was to promote permanent long-term settlement throughout the plains, first in the areas between the two lines, and then uh, expanding outward from there. And if nothing else, Sherman was a supremely capable administrator, uh, the, the perfect pick to make something on that scale happen. And uh, he was indeed highly successful. By May of 1869, travel by rail all the way across the continent was a reality. And Sherman was also uh, what you might call a stone-cold realist. When you have a job to do, you get the job done. You don't worry about hurting feelings. Uh, maybe you try to limit collateral damage to the uh, extent practical, but, you know, omelets and eggs and, and whatnot. In the mission Sherman uh, presently found himself leading, the collateral damage was the American Indian population. Permanent United States settlements throughout the Department of the Mississippi would require subdued natives. Uh, the natives could, could cooperate and maybe eventually become U.S. citizens themselves, or they could do things the hard way. Uh, one way or the other, though, Sherman was going to get the job done. In December 1866, it became apparent that it was going to be the hard way. A Sioux war party attacked uh, and killed a group of 81 U.S. soldiers. And in response, uh, Sherman wasn't really interested in half measures or compromises. His game was total war. In a letter to Washington, Sherman explained, quote, We must act with vindictive earnestness against the Sioux. Even to their extermination, men, women, and children, nothing else will reach the root of the cause. End quote. Yeah, he didn't, didn't mince words. Extermination. Now, if that sounds harsh, Sherman's plan for making it happen was brutally efficient. First, wipe out the buffalo herds so that they could uh, no longer sustain the Indian population. And then at that point, the tribes would, well, they'd either starve or they'd become reliant on the largesse of the American government for their survival. It, it's the same principle, really, as burning farms in Georgia, South Carolina, and the Shenandoah Valley, or the blockade of Germany during World War I. When the population can't feed itself or support the warriors, uh, resistance becomes more or less impossible. Tactically, uh, small teams uh, of the best soldiers with an emphasis on mobility. Commanders in the field were given wide discretion with the understanding that the men on the scene know best what's necessary to get the job done and that they should only rarely be second-guessed. And, so, and General Philip Sheridan, who had you know, a similar military philosophy and background to Sherman's, he would lead the boots on the ground. So it didn't take all too much of that uh, Sherman and Sheridan, you know, doing what they did best. And civic leaders and journalists back east started to question the brutality of the campaign against the Plains Indians. In response, the Indian Peace Commission, which included Sherman, was formed in 1867 for the purpose of negotiating a peaceful compromise with the tribes. Now, Sherman viewed the commission as a, a big, fat waste of time, but he was willing to play along to, you know, placate the bleeding hearts. In his mind, the two peoples, though, were, were just incompatible. There was bound to be conflict, and one side or the other, well, had to come out on top. 
So he was going to make sure it was his side. There wasn't really, you know, anything sinister about it. It was just cold realism. There was going to be a conflict. There has to be. So we should make sure that, you know, we prevail in that conflict. Because, you know, otherwise, well, uh, otherwise we don't prevail. And his approach to negotiations while on the uh, Peace Commission could be boiled down to basically get on the reservations or else. And a substantial portion of the Indian population agreed to resettle. Sherman, uh, for instance, successfully convinced the Navajo to relocate to a a reservation in western New Mexico. Um, And this was also uh, cold realism on the part of the the tribes. The, uh, The leaders of most of the tribes recognized that they simply could not defeat the United States. And even the tribes that resisted, for the most part, recognized that they didn't have you know, any realistic chance of winning in the end. It was more of a, a death-before-dishonor thing. Now, the problem for the cooperative tribes was that until they could adjust to a new way of life on the reservations, they would have to rely on resources from the U.S. government uh, for their sustenance. And the government agreed to provide those resources, but somewhat predictably did not come through. Now, it usually wasn't because the negotiators themselves didn't intend to to deliver. It was, uh, as is so often the case, bureaucratic corruption. The result was miserable poverty, even by the standards of the the 1860s and 70s. And with with no means of support, the Indians had little choice but to rearm and fight. Now, Sherman, for his part, uh, he didn't approve of the corruption and double dealing with the Indians. But when the uprisings came... He wasn't going to pull any punches either. Sherman had received something of a promotion in 1868 uh, when Grant was elected president. At his uh, old friend's request, he took a job in Washington as general of the army, a rank that had been created especially for Grant and which Sherman now uh, assumed. Now, Sherman wasn't eager for the job. He really didn't like the part about having to move to Washington to do it. But he figured his friend needed his support, so he'd buckle down and, and deal with the politics. Now, the position did not go well, at least from Sherman's perspective. He, he had been promised that he would be operating essentially independently of the Secretary of War. Uh, to that post, the Secretary of War position, Grant named William Belknap. Belknap had served under Sherman in the Army of the Tennessee, and Sherman was, was not thrilled about the idea of reporting to a former subordinate or reporting to any politician, for that matter. But Belknap convinced uh, Grant that the general of the army needed to be subordinated to the secretary, and Sherman was stuck serving beneath someone that he really did not have a favorable view of. Really, uh, the tension with Belknap, and with the civilian bureaucracy in general, was uh, a feature of this part of Sherman's career. As an aside, or I guess uh, some trivia, Sherman briefly served as Secretary of War on an interim basis when Grant's first pick, uh, former adjutant John Rawlins, uh, died in office early in Grant's term. Sherman didn't want the the job long term, but he did temporarily hold the position. So you can reasonably include cabinet secretary on Sherman's resume. More importantly, Rawlins had been a, a straight shooter, and Sherman probably could have worked with him a lot better than with Belknap. And uh, Grant almost certainly would have been better served by Rollins than uh, Belknap. But Rollins died, and, and Belknap, who 
you know, Sherman didn't have respect for got the job. This was a frustrating time in Sherman's career because in his mind, he held an almost unprecedentedly high rank uh, on paper, but his, his actual authority was limited. He, he wasn't really in direct command of any men, but Belknap had maneuvered and manipulated the, the situation so that uh, he, as Secretary of War, had control over uh, you know the big picture stuff. Uh, this frustration came through in Sherman's 1873 report to Grant, which I shall now uh, read verbatim in its entirety. Quote, No part of the army is under my immediate control, and the existing regulations devolve on the Secretary of War, the actual command of the military peace establishment, and all responsibility therefore, so that I forbear making any further recommendations or report. End quote. And that was Sherman's 1873 report. I think it's fair to say that the... Uh, the brevity was intended to convey, you know, a little bitterness. Fortunately, Sherman was able to convince Grant that he wasn't really needed in Washington and that he could do more good back in St. Louis, closer to the uh, the action building on the plains. And Sherman also wanted to get away from the, the politicians and bleeding hearts who were critical of the Indian policy. And, and it was a good thing that he did. The, the corruption during Grant's administration was was rampant. And Grant was was mostly unaware and, and made some efforts to rein it in, but he never fully managed to get a handle on things. Uh, Grant was adept as a judge of military prowess, but he was woefully incompetent as a judge of moral integrity, uh, especially among the political operators in Washington. Or perhaps uh, more accurately, uh, Grant made the mistake of assuming people were generally uh, honest and had the, the country's best interests at heart, like Grant did. Uh, until they gave him a reason to think otherwise. That's not a bad worldview generally, but when you're dealing with ambitious politicians, the uh, the opposite approach, uh, assuming that they're self-interested and untrustworthy until they demonstrate otherwise, is probably you know the sounder policy. So one of the uh, corrupt actors in the Grant administration who did eventually get his comeuppance was Secretary of War William Belknap the one Sherman had bumped heads with. Belknap got caught up in a, uh, a bribery scandal and was impeached during Grant's second term. Now, Sherman wasn't really the type to say, I told you so, but uh, no, nah, I'm just kidding. Sherman was totally the type to say, I told you so. The focus of Sherman's efforts during his time in St. Louis was the Indian Wars. Uh, including the Modoc War, Sioux War of 1876, and the Nez Perce War. Uh, by this point in his career, he was in more of a uh, managerial role. So he wasn't directly uh, commanding any troops, but he was more involved in organizing, uh, strategizing, and generally ensuring that the uh, men in the field had the resources that they needed. Even so, he wasn't shy about making his thoughts known uh, about how the campaigns should be conducted. Now, Grant's uh, Indian peace policy, as it was called, uh, was actually intended to uh, soften the impact that Western expansion would have on on the tribes to uh, stop the bloodshed. And partially because of Grant's genuine desire to curb the violence, he he bought into the idea that um, that decimating the bison herds was a good idea. 
the the theory was that if the Indians didn't have the buffalo to sustain them, then they would have no choice but to give up the fight. And there is a certain logic to it, uh, I guess. But, uh, damn, poor buffalo. And as a result, a, a bill before Congress, which was intended to to protect the buffalo herds and, and sort of a forerunner to the uh, conservation movement, uh, it failed, due in part to Grant's reluctance to support it. Now, there were a lot of factors that led to the, the Indian conflicts on the plains, but uh, the destruction of the buffalo herds really didn't help the situation, at least from the, um, the Indians' perspective. So the Modoc War began when a uh, group of Modoc warriors killed the negotiators that the, the federal government had sent to uh, convince them to stay on the reservation. In Sherman's opinion, it was vital that, quote, their fate, in Sherman's words, be commensurate with their crimes. And to Sherman, that meant that when uh, instructing the commander who was assigned to retaliate against the Modoc, uh, he, Sherman provided reassurance that you will be fully justified in their utter extermination and if that was the standard, it was pretty much mission accomplished. As Sherman later explained, quote, During an assault, the soldiers cannot pause to distinguish between male and female, or even discriminate as to age. End quote. Ouch. And things didn't go a heck of a lot better for the Sioux, or the uh, Lakota, however you like it. In 1874, gold was discovered in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And the Black Hills were sacred land and had been promised to to the Lakota by the uh, U.S. government. Sherman recognized a potential disaster when he saw one, and so he issued a prohibition on gold digging and prospecting within Sioux territory. But Sherman also recognized that the resources that he had at his disposal were wholly insufficient to enforce that order. And, and he told Grant uh, as much in, in no uncertain terms. So with the borders to the Sioux Territory essentially wide open, Sherman tried to implement a, a plan to keep separate the Americans pouring into the Dakotas and the uh, Indians who were already there. Given the amount of land in question, though, only the cavalry had even the remotest chance uh, of making that work. And even the cavalry, well, they didn't really stand much of a chance. But if anyone could do it, it was Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer. Custer was already well known in the Army, among the Indians, and even among the general public, due to his book, My Life on the Plains. He had been a successful young officer from Michigan during the Civil War, rising all the way up to the temporary rank of Major General, And in all fairness, he was generally a pretty decent commander. But, of course, Custer is not known for his successes. What you might call the the climax of the Sioux Wars, which stretched on and off from the early 1850s through 1890, was the famous, or infamous, Battle of the Little Bighorn. Now, we might take a look at, at Custer in a later episode, and frankly, he's, he's a really interesting figure. Uh, but for now, the Notes version is that the, uh, the Army out west was carrying out a campaign to force the Sioux and the Cheyenne back to their reservations. 
and Custer's 7th Cavalry was detached from a much larger force in search of 800 hostiles in the Dakota Territory. 800 was considered a fairly large group, and Custer hoped that he could catch them uh, while they were all still together. It was late June of 1876. Custer's scouts reported seeing signs of a large gathering in the distance as they traveled through the Crow Indian Reservation. The scouts working for Custer included a few Crow Indians uh, who wanted to see the Sioux, who were a traditional enemy of the Crow, removed from the Crow Reservation. And they estimated the gathering that they that they observed to be uh, significantly larger than the 800 that Custer's detachment thought it was pursuing. But this didn't really concern Custer. Now, as it turns out, there were, in reality, thousands of Sioux and Cheyenne gathered under Sioux Shaman uh, Sitting Bull and Warrior Chief Crazy Horse, many having recently left the reservations to join up with Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. Custer's plan was to capture the Indian camp, where the women, children, and the elderly were gathered while the warriors were away, and then, with what effectively amounted to hostages, he hoped to convince the warriors to surrender. It didn't work. Custer split his force of about 700 men, and the separate detachments were forced to independently engage the somewhere around 5,000 Sioux, Cheyenne, and Arapaho Indians. The 7th Cavalry was effectively swamped, losing well over 300 men, including every single soldier in the battalion that Custer personally commanded, including Custer. The precise details are sketchy, because there weren't a whole lot of survivors, but uh, later Sioux accounts and uh, an army investigation suggested that Custer uh, advanced on the gathering, was repelled, and then retreated to the hill where he made his famous last stand, before dying of multiple gunshot wounds. Now, for our purposes, the significance of the Battle of the Little Bighorn was that it took the air out of the sympathy that had been building back east for the Plains Indians. The public just flipped out, demanding a swift, stern response with which Sherman was, well, he was in complete agreement. Uh, On the Little Bighorn, Sherman commented, quote, Surely in grand strategy we ought not to allow savages to beat us, but in this case they did. And as for a response, Sherman concluded, Hostile savages like Sitting Bull and his band of outlaw Sioux must feel the superior power of the government. And, well, that's more or less what happened. Uh, Custer's last stand allowed Sherman and the commanders reporting to him from a, a political perspective to get away with a more aggressive strategy for putting down the Sioux and their allies. And it didn't take long. Crazy Horse would surrender less than a year later. There would still be some more violence on the plains, but nothing on the scale of the Little Bighorn. Sherman's official retirement came in February of 1884, which means that Sherman's career in the Army stretched almost 20 years after the Civil War. Now, he eased into his retirement with a Uh, a nationwide tour throughout most of 1883. Sherman viewed his work in the West as a resounding success, having played a pivotal role in the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad that now united the country and made possible the settlement of the West. Realistically, you can't tell the famous story of of how the West was won uh, without including the name William Tecumseh Sherman. 
Within living memory, Lewis and Clark had explored the uncharted western territory, previously all but unknown to Americans. And now, after Sherman's tenure, the stage had been set for a large-scale settlement. No longer would the plains be defined by nomadic Indian tribes in pursuit of massive herds of bison. Instead, in Sherman's words, they had, quote, substituted for the useless Indian the intelligent owners of productive farms and cattle ranches. The only place to go from the heights to which Sherman had climbed, from a professional standpoint, was a run for the White House. And despite being in a position to, to in all likelihood, cruise to an easy win, Sherman was emphatically not interested. In response to questions about his, his presidential ambitions, Sherman provided one of his most famous quotes, and he had quite a few good ones. Uh, and it was a quote that added the word Sherman-esque to the lexicon of future political scientists. As Sherman put it, quote, I will not accept if nominated, and will not serve if elected. End quote. Now, that's about as unequivocal as it gets. And unequivocal dismissals uh, are still compared to Sherman's uh, verbiage, even though they're not always meant as genuinely as Sherman's. So instead of a White House run, Sherman spent his retirement enjoying the rest of his life, primarily in New York City which now features the famous Sherman Memorial at the entrance to Central Park. He had always been a fan of theater, and so he was a regular at many of the famous New York playhouses. And painting became a prominent part of his golden years, too. In retirement, Sherman the warrior had become Sherman the artist and theater connoisseur. In his final years, he became one of the earliest members of the Boone and Crockett Club, a nature conservation organization founded by a young Teddy Roosevelt. Sherman died of pneumonia on February 14, 1891, at the age of 71. He left behind his Memoirs of General William T. Sherman, originally published in 1875, to cover the period from the Mexican War to the aftermath of the Civil War, and later updated to include his life prior to 1846 and his postbellum military career. Sherman caught a little criticism for allegedly being too hard on his old friend U.S. Grant, or maybe uh, insufficiently deferential would be a better way to put it. Grant, for his part, didn't see it that way, remarking, quote, When I finished the book, I found I approved every word. It was a true book, an honorable book, creditable to Sherman, just to his companions, to myself particularly so, just such a book as I expected Sherman would write, end quote. So Sherman didn't leave behind quite the legacy that Grant did, but he he wasn't too far behind. Uh, His biggest contributions were, of course, to the structure and character of the United States military. The command school at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, was founded under Sherman's leadership and vision. And his sober, no-nonsense, unromantic approach to warfare and military philosophy was on display through a lot of the 20th century. And, of course... The World War II workhorse known as the Sherman Tank was indeed named after William T. Sherman. Interestingly, though, it wasn't uh, Americans who gave it the name. That particular tank model was initially called simply the M4. Beginning in the early years of World War II, uh, through the Lend-Lease program, you know, before Pearl Harbor and and U.S. military involvement, um, and continuing throughout the war, over 17,000 M4s were provided to the British military 
and it was the British Army that first applied the Sherman moniker to the M4. Obviously, the name caught on, and before long, the M4 was known among all of the Allies as the M4 Sherman. Now, the Sherman tank first saw live combat in North Africa and remained in service in the U.S. Army and the Marine Corps through 1957, including significant use in Korea. Now, even for years after then, American allies continued to regularly rely on the Sherman. Uh, The Israeli Defense Force, for example, had Sherman tanks in the field with upgraded armaments a full 40 years after World War II. Particularly in the early 20th century, Sherman's legacy suffered under harsh treatment from uh, the Southern historians who who set the tone in the study of the Civil War uh, during that period. And even a few British historians were highly critical of the manner in which Sherman conducted his campaigns in the South. The somewhat ironic part about that is that Sherman was notably friendly toward the South and Southerners in general before and after the war. He didn't really get involved in postbellum politics, but he, he personally favored the conciliatory approach to Reconstruction that Lincoln had favored. Now, with that said... Uh, Sherman took the hellishness of war to levels Americans hadn't seen before. His campaigns in Georgia and South Carolina punished the citizenry much more severely than anything Northerners had to endure when Lee invaded Maryland and Pennsylvania. And as has been pointed out by many a resentful Southerner, under some modern rules of warfare, Sherman at least arguably committed war crimes. Now, I really don't think it's fair to judge Sherman under standards which were not in place when he allegedly violated them. And I also don't think you can evaluate the march to the sea and the burning of Columbia out of the context of the strategy that Sherman and Grant were employing. Just as you can argue against the use of the atomic bomb against Japan in World War II, but you have to acknowledge that there was a rational, if not humanitarian, logic behind its use, So, too, did Sherman bring home the hell of war in the Deep South for a rational, strategic reason. His objective was to end the war, a result he viewed as being in the best interests of all Americans, and not just Union men. And in achieving that end, he was undeniably successful. that'll just about do it for this episode and for our series on William Tecumseh Sherman. Next up will be Nathan Bedford Forrest, which I think is going to be another interesting subject, and I hope all of you listening will tune in for it as well. Before diving into our look at uh, Forrest, we might mix in a one-part change-of-pace type episode, but that decision hasn't been uh, finally made yet, so um, tune in to find out for sure. I'd like to extend a big heartfelt thanks to everyone for listening and for all the support the show has received. And finally, on a bibliographical note, our portrait of William Tecumseh Sherman relied on In the Service of My Country, a Sherman biography by James McDonough, Robert O'Connell's Sherman biography, Fierce Patriot, and Nancy Whitelaw's Victory in Destruction, which was also a Sherman biography. Uh, The latter is um, a high school level book that I happened upon at the local library, but I found that it had some some good quotes and uh, anecdotes that added a lot to my understanding of of Sherman's personality. 
As is often the case, uh, these episodes also relied on James McPherson, Shelby Foote, and Alan Axelrod, all of whom have written general treatments of the war that I have found very helpful. And I also wanted to mention that the accounts from Atlanta and Columbia in, in this particular episode came from an old primary source compilation edited by Richard Harwell, uh, which was generously gifted uh, to me by my wife's grandmother. So big thanks for making that possible. That'll do it for now. Thanks as always for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.